It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. This winter's Alaska Marine Highway schedule has ferries running for more weeks than last year, but still leaves some communities with large service gaps. The State Department of Transportation on Tuesday released a draft schedule for October through April. The southwest region will see more sailings than last year, but no service in January and February. Prince William Sound will be without service in October and November, but will see calls from the Aurora between December and April. Small communities in the northern panhandle, including Huna, Gustavus, Teneke, and Pelican may also spend most of January and February without ferry service. The Taslina is scheduled to take over these routes for the first two months of the year while the Leconte is out for maintenance. That's only if DOT has enough crew available to run the vessel. But they're hopeful, says ferry system spokesman Sam Dapsevich. It says crew pending on our operating plan, but um you know, we're, we have a very heavy recruitment effort going on, and we're going to shuffle things around so that we can run the Taslina in place of the Leconte during that two-month uh, time period where Leconte is in overhaul. Two of the state's largest ferries will be out of service most of the winter for overhauls. The Matanuska, serving the mainline route through southeast, won't run at all. But the 418-foot flagship Columbia, sometimes called the Queen of the Fleet, will be back online in November for the first time since it was sidelined to save money in 2019. That means there won't be a gap in mainline service for the region, which hasn't been the case the last three years. The Columbia is going to be ready to go in November, and it will run the entire winter schedule all the way through April 30th. The Kennecott is slated to fill in for the Matanuska in October, running from the lower 48 to Prince Rupert through southeast. Then it'll go in for service for nearly six months. It goes into overhaul November 1st, and it doesn't come back out until April 20th. So that's longer than usual for not having cross-gulf service. The Kennecott and the Columbia will service Sitka all winter with weekly ferry stops on Sundays headed southbound. Right now, no northbound ferries are on the schedule for Sitka. There are no port calls to Prince Rupert after October on the draft schedule. Another of the fleet's largest vessels, the Tustamina, will sail in the southwest region except during a two-month overhaul in January and February. The newer ferry Hubbard will be out all winter getting crew quarters built. It was previously scheduled to start service this year, but officials say the project is being held up by supply chain issues. The only ferry expected to run the full seven-month winter season is the Latuya. That's the smallest ferry in the fleet and runs between Ketchikan and Metlakatla. You can find a link to the proposed winter schedule on our website, kcaw.org. The state is accepting written comments on it until August 26th. Sitka's coronavirus level was downgraded to medium this week after several weeks at high. That's according to data published on Thursday by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Sitka's case rate has also fallen substantially in the last week. On Wednesday, the Alaska Department of Health reported 22 new cases, including 18 Sitkins and four non-residents. That's down by more than half from 55 cases reported the previous week. Statewide, COVID cases continue a slow and steady decline that began in mid-July, with just over 2,000 cases reported last week.
President Joe Biden signed the Democrats' tax and climate package, known as the Inflation Reduction Act, into law last week. Among the law's key provisions are a $7,500 tax credit for new electric vehicles, but only if the cobalt, graphite, and other minerals in the EV's batteries come from domestic or friendly sources. And, as KRBD's Eric Stone reports, that provision and others in the bill could spur mine development in Alaska. The Inflation Reduction Act offers $7,500 tax credits for people who buy new electric vehicles. But as Patty Ryan of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center explains, there's a pretty big catch. There are about zero cars on the U.S. market today uh, that could potentially qualify for these credits. That's because starting in 2024, 40% of the metals used in electric vehicle battery production, including cobalt, manganese, nickel, lithium, and graphite, have to either be extracted or processed in the U.S. or a friendly country to qualify for the credit. That figure moves to 80% by 2027. And none can come from so-called foreign entities of concern. That's diplomat ease for China and Russia. So essentially, the supply chain implications uh, are the real story. Most of the lithium used in the lithium-ion batteries that go into EVs comes from Australia and Chile, says economist Brett Watson at the University of Alaska Anchorage's Institute of Social and Economic Research. So those will qualify under the tax credit provisions, which require um, sourcing materials from uh, uh, nations that have a free trade agreement with the United States, which both of those nations do. But that's not the case for some of the other minerals used in batteries. Cobalt, on the other hand, is mostly sourced from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The U.S. doesn't have a free trade agreement with the Congo, and that means EV manufacturers will have to source their cobalt elsewhere, maybe from recycling or maybe from Alaska. Cobalt is being prospected right now from the Ambler District. That's a mining prospect in northwest Alaska. Whether it'll turn into a mine is far from a sure bet. The project has been mired in controversy for years. But the company hoping to develop the Ambler Mining District sees the Inflation Reduction Act as an encouraging sign, and not just because of the tax credits for cobalt. Ambler Metals President and CEO Ramsey Fawaz says the Inflation Reduction Act's tax credits for advanced manufacturing are more important to his project in the short term. And what it boils down to is it uh, the companies that are in mining and uh, they can write off 10% of the cost of their operations if they produce one single critical mineral. There's a long list of minerals that qualify from aluminum to zinc. Our first project will will be called the Arctic project. And uh, once we make a decision to invest and start construction, the mine will operate and uh, mainly produce copper and zinc and other metals Uh, sometime in the late 20s. Cobalt production from the so-called Bornite deposit would start much later. But will the Inflation Reduction Act's tax credits be enough to move the needle towards actually getting a mine built? It's a complex (laughs) uh, question, of course, because uh, it does help for sure. uh, But there are so many factors in in making and realizing a project like ours. Like, for example, whether a planned 200-plus-mile road to the mining district will move forward. The state's investment agency has poured millions into efforts to build the road, but the project stalled in February after the Biden administration said an environmental analysis of the road was flawed. The push for more domestic minerals to support green technology could have far-reaching effects all over the state. Watson, the economist, points to a prospect called Graphite One outside Nome as another potential beneficiary of the Inflation Reduction Act's electric vehicle tax credit. And in Southeast, he says the advanced manufacturing credit could make development of a rare earth mine on Prince of Wales Island and a processing facility planned for the Ketchikan area an easier sell.
you could imagine that facility in Ketchikan applying for that advanced manufacturing tax credit. Uh, so there's something in the bill uh, potentially for the Ketchikan uh, Boken Ridge facility as well. But Watson says what would truly move the needle is a bill that would reform the sometimes decades-long permitting process to get the mines built. That's reportedly part of the deal that created the Inflation Reduction Act, but no bill has been filed in Congress yet. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. Earlier this month, Dillingham's annual Mud Run, an outdoor event for kids to get active, returned after a two-year hiatus. KLDG's Catherine Moncure has the story. On a sunny afternoon in Dillingham, a series of large wooden trays filled with mud line the gravel path by the softball field. It's the Mud Run, an obstacle course organized by the Bristol Bay Area Health Corporation. The Mud Run is back after a two-year COVID-19 hiatus. It's an opportunity for kids and some adults to get outside, get active, and get, well, muddy. A giant inflatable arch marks the start of the course. In true Bristol Bay fashion, the theme of the mud run is salmon. Volunteer and participant Deanna Beyer describes the setup. So we've got different stations where the participants essentially are salmon and they're going through or under a gill net. They're going past bears. They're uh, going up a fish ladder or waterfalls. Kids hop over logs and wriggle through the mud trying not to get caught in the net. The bears are high schoolers on the cross-country team, pelting the younger children with water balloons. Then they get doused in bright color powder as they run back toward the starting line. The mud that everyone is crawling, jumping, and splashing through came from Knacknack Beach. The Dillingham cross-country coach volunteered her team to set up the course, so the group of runners hauled the cold mud from one side of town to the other. So uh, we brought some, uh, a few totes, some people, and uh, some shovels, and we, we kind of like put them in a certain way so we can just drag all the dirt into the, the totes. That's Mud Run participant Dylan McCambly. He explains the scientific process of how they created the perfect batch of mud. And then we brought them here, put them in the, the tarps, and just put some water on them, and eventually with some mixing it turned into some mud. Not everyone is as comfortable with the mud as Dylan is. Cross-country coach Amanda Leeton has brought her five-year-old daughter, Leah, to the mud run, too. When asked if she enjoyed the race, she has mixed feelings. Yeah, but I didn't like that it squished in my shoes. Leah's mom asks her to elaborate. Did the mud feel good? Yeah, but I know. <laughs> no. no, is it because your shoes kept falling off? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to do it again next year? Uh, it's, but it's so muddy, too muddy. What if we had boots on? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> In Dillingham, I'm Catherine Monk here. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. <laughs>